If you'd like to open your Bibles, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1. This is page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good morning. The Christian philosopher, Peter Kreeft, once wrote that there are three things that we all need. Things that we know that we absolutely need and look for. And these three things which he calls the three transcendentals are in the order of their importance. Truth first, and then goodness, and then beauty. He says this is the order in which they exist in nature. This is the order in which we need them. But he says that the way we respond to them is the exact opposite order. So what catches our attention first is not the truth, but the beauty first, and then the goodness, and then the truth. Technically, what our philosopher is saying is that people are not inherently truth seekers. We are not interested in what is true. We are looking for something that is beautiful. Interestingly enough, this is... This was the exact same order in which I converted out of my family's faith of Sunni Islam, became an atheist before I became a Christian. On April 1st, 2011, a Turkish 737 like this one landed at the JFK area, airport, carrying people from Turkey, some European countries, and one man from Iraq that was about to experience a radical change in his life. A few days earlier, I quit my job in which I worked as a sanitary engineer for eight years, said the final goodbyes to my family, came to this nation with one bag, with only enough money for me to survive for weeks, half of which I paid my lawyer to apply for my asylum status, and with only one contact, a poor woman in the Amish country of Pennsylvania. The planned part of that trip was a one-week tour in New York City. I was admitted as a visitor. The unplanned part, everything else. I just came to this nation to be free and to get a sense of how it feels like to have dignity for once in my lifetime, especially the freedom to worship the God I believe in the way I believe is true. Within just a few months after my arrival, I met over a thousand people who rushed to call me a brother. And God led me through those months of insecurity and uncertainty in the Amish country until at the very day when I ran out of the last dollar, I started to get paid to be completely devoted to study the book I had a secret love affair with back in my hometown. My name is Wissam. I was born in Baghdad in 1979, in January. A month later, Ayatollah Khomeini led the Islamic Revolution in the neighboring Iran. The summer of that year, Saddam Hussein became our president. One man managed to scare a whole nation in the two neighboring countries, and the war between the two of them broke out to last for eight years. That was my childhood. I was literally born and raised in a war zone. A classic example of a world that was not told to love one another. Shortly after the end of the Iraq-Iran war, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. We had the sanctions that lasted for 13 years in which my whole family lived on $1 a month. 
We had the Gulf War of 1991. And up until that point, Saddam Hussein was not a religious leader, as many people think here in the United States. He was a secular military dictator obsessed with the Soviet model, and he wanted to turn Iraq from a, a, a rural community into a, a military power. But he realized that he could not impose a social secular system on the predominantly Muslim people of Iraq. When there was an Islamic revolt against him, a Shiite revolt in the south, so after he crushed that revolt in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, killing tens of thousands of his own people, he started to put on a show of Islam. He wrote Allahu Akbar on the Iraqi flag. He ordered the Quran to be taught in the Iraqi schools before graduation from high school. He built hundreds of mosques all over Iraq. And he started to turn the Iraqi community from being secular to being more religious. My father retired in 1992 and pretty much did not do anything ever since. My mom, a hard-working, self-sacrificing woman started working as a seamstress, mending the clothes of our neighborhood to provide for me and my family and the Iraqi version of the Great Depression. I was in the middle of my teenage years, in the middle of the 1990s, when it was obvious that Iraq was at enmity with every other country in the world. Hate was being preached everywhere against you when I did not know you, when I did not have any reason to hate you. We did not have the terrorism and the Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the beheading and the car bombs that are ravaging the Middle East now, but all of that was a culture. You could feel that something was bubbling up, something was brewing. There was always the expectation of war. That was a culture that was preached in mosques, taught in schools, and communicated by the government through their limited channels. We had two government TV channels, three government newspapers, two government radio stations, and that's it. The internet, the cell phones, the satellite channels already common in all the neighboring countries of Iraq were banned under Saddam Hussein and we were only told what the government wanted us to know. Like every Iraqi, I had this kind of vacuum inside of me. Something did not make sense. Something did not click. Unlike the religious people of the Muslim community of Iraq, I was not distracted from realizing that vacuum, praying five times a day, fasting every Ramadan, reading the Quran without bothering to know what the Quran actually is saying. In all seriousness, we did not starve for food or water because of the sanctions years. We had a socialist government that provided us with our basic needs almost for free. But we were starving for a different kind of bread and a different kind of water that we did not even know. My four-year-old sister passed away in 1996. My mom, a panicked mother in the funeral of her daughter, was begging for someone to provide her with a glimpse of hope that that innocent child went to heaven. No one was able to provide her with that assured hope. And the only man who was knowledgeable in the Quran and the funeral told her she will be judged for the very first breath she took in when she was born. That's when I started to think, what kind of God is that? A few months later, my uncle got cancer. He was the uncle that I loved the most. He was so kind and so generous. He was so humorous. We had so many inside jokes. But he would cry every time I talked with him. Not only because he saw his death coming, which he did in a few days, but because for the first time in his life, he was unable to go to the bathroom, to get ritually clean, to do the prayers every Muslim is required to do five times a day. He was in bed soiling himself. He thought God was done with him, and he died without hope. That was the point when I decided that's it between me and anything that resembles religion, rejected Islam, and became an atheist.
I thought I would be happy if I were an atheist. I mean, especially that the only thing that the Quran assures of is hellfire. What's the point of piety anyway? Imagine living in a world where there is no God, where your life has a beginning and an end, and you can do whatever you want between the two of them. Somewhere deep inside of me, I was not happy and not satisfied because I was looking for a sense of direction. I was looking for justice. I was looking for an eye that watches over me and an ear that listens to me. And I wanted to fill that vacuum that was inside of me. Looking for entertainment and distraction, reading books, listening to music, watching movies, and most of the books that I read and the movies that I watched quoted the Bible. Now, as we learned in the past couple of days, Islam teaches that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Islam does not have any issue with the inspiration of the Bible. It challenges its preservation, though. And Islam claims that the Bible that we have today is not the same Bible that was revealed to the prophets. I was not religious anyway, so I did not care. But those books and those movies continue to quote the Bible. In fact, I was in my second year studying civil engineering at the University of Baghdad when the first Mission Impossible movie was released. Tom Cruise picked the Gideon's Bible and read Job 3, 16 or 14? 14. That was the third, first time I ever see the Bible. I got so curious to get myself a copy of the Bible only to understand what those books and those movies were saying. So I went to a flea market in Baghdad and bought my first Bible. It was the Gospel of John. I did not find Job 3.14 in the Gospel of John. So I was thinking, well, Muslims were right. Everybody is making up a different Bible. I mean, who's John anyway? Something caught my attention, though, in the Gospel of John, the way Jesus pointed fingers at the hypocritical religious authorities of his time, calling them liars. Something you're not supposed to do in a Muslim community. I was raised by two devout Muslim parents that taught me that every imam is a steward of God's word, and we should not question them even when they misquote their own scriptures. Well, not that Jesus in that book, which I did not care whether it was true or not, that called them hypocrites and liars. I have always identified myself as a rebel just like this Jesus. Did not care though, threw the gospel away, finished my second year in college. I was in the summer holiday between the second and the third year when I was back in that same flea market flipping the New Testament. I saw the gospel of John in the New Testament. That was the first time I learned that the gospel of John was not another Bible as Muslims claim. It was part of a bigger book, so I bought the New Testament. Few days later, I realized that the New Testament was part of another bigger book. I ran out of money, borrowed money from my cousin, and bought my first complete Bible. I was so shocked to see an accurate historical and geographic description in the Bible of a world that I am familiar with. Babylon, that's 50 miles to the south of my parents' house. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, these are the native Iraqis. Nebuchadnezzar, his poster is next to Saddam Hussein's picture in every street corner in Iraq. The captivity, the pride of the Iraqi history that we studied in the seventh grade in the public schools. And I was thinking, man, the guy who made up this book really knew his history and geography. The beauty of the Bible caught my attention first. In his How to Read Literature Like a Professor, Thomas Foster does not claim to be a believer. Says in page 60, that the Bible is the most influential piece of literature ever written. Every story, fairy tale, song, poem, painting that we have ever seen or heard is inspired at least indirectly by the Bible. And then I started to fall in love with the goodness of the Bible way before I believed in its truth. The Bible is a good book, believe it or not. 
It preaches love and not hate. It preaches peace and not violence. It preaches integrity, benevolence. It preaches forgiveness and not vengeance. I had so many questions about that book that I started to be intrigued with. I did not have any Christian friends in my neighborhood, and I did not remember having any Christian friends in the first two years in college. But when the third year started, I saw a man with a big cross on his shirt. He obviously flunked the third year. I went to him. I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am. He was a member of the Iraqi Chaldean Catholic Church, the biggest church in Iraq. I said, do you know your Bible? I got myself a copy of the Bible. I have a few questions. He said, go ahead. I said, do you Christians believe that you are saved by God's grace or by your obedience? I read the book of Romans. Like every preacher, he did not directly answer my question, <laughs> but took the opportunity to take me aside and explain to me the gospel message for me for the first time in my life. I was 19. He told me how God is a holy and just God that does not tolerate sin. But at the same time, he's a loving God. So he sent his son to take our sins on him and die on the cross for us. It's a combination of God's grace and our obedience. I said, interesting. Do you really believe that? You know, here in the Western world, you describe an absolute truth as of a gospel truth. Where I came from, the word Bible is synonymous with corruption. When somebody deceives or lies to you, you would tell that somebody, your rhetoric is as corrupt as the Bible. I know that the most educated part of the world is too smart to follow a made-up book, but do you really believe that? Or do you do that only to spite us Muslims? Because who in his right mind can believe in a God that is one, but he's three persons at the same time? He said, yeah, oh yeah, we do believe. Next day, he brought me some literature that talked about how many tens of thousands of Bible manuscripts we have today in the museums from different times, from different places, written in different languages, all matching each other. There is no way the Islamic claim that the Bible is corrupt is true. And I was so happy to learn that the book that had the solution to every problem my community is suffering from turned out to be true. I was so happy to learn that the book that was both beautiful and good turned out to be true. I thought everybody else would be as happy. I was wrong. You see, in Islam, it is unthinkable to think of converting out of Islam. Once you join Islam, it places a death sentence on you. The first person I tried to share the gospel with was that woman that I loved the most. The woman that gave all that she had and all that she is for me, knowing that on one day I would probably leave her for good. My mom used to wake up every morning to make breakfast for me. Every morning, even to the very last day before I came to the United States at the age of 32. And at that time, she would not answer me when I say, good morning, mom. One day I said, mom, what's wrong? She looked at me with tears on her cheeks, grabbed me by the collar and said, please tell me what did I fail to provide to you that you do this thing to me? I said, what thing? She said, I've been working day and night to make a human being out of you. I've been wearing my eyes out on that sewing machine and you've been using my money to buy that blasphemous book that I've been seeing among your college books. Look at yourself, grow up. With that, with the lack of encouragement, with the lack of wisdom, with the fact that I started to lose my Muslim friends and did not gain many new Christian friends, with the fact that I started to get harassed by the religious authorities in my neighborhood, I came to that point where I thought to myself, this is just wrong. Maybe there is no God. 
Maybe the gospel was just another philosophy I wanted to entertain and distract myself with. And I renounced the Christian faith and gave away my Bible. Only a few months later, I realized that the hope and the satisfaction and the assurance that I had when I claimed God's promises in the Bible as my own would not be replaced with any security in life. I'd rather be a persecuted Christian with hope than a comfortable non-believer with no hope. So I bought a new Bible in English this time so my mom would not understand what I'm reading and I continued to read the Bible in secret for the rest of my stay in Iraq. My biggest challenge was that it would take me 12 years going to every single church building in Baghdad trying to get baptized in vain. So I graduated in 2000, uh, served as a Republican guard for a year and a half, was discharged and was employed as a sanitary engineer. The American Army came in 2003. Thank you for your service. For the first time, we started to be open to the rest of the world. We started to have the internet. I would go online and download sermons and Christian songs and upload them to my MP3 player and listen to them when I take the bus to work every morning as I read a passage from the Bible. What would a single guy in his mid-20s first download from the internet when he sees it? Of course, Esau, the Bible program. Program, and everything continued to have the same tone to it until that one morning in October of 2009 when I was at the ninth floor 1500 employee building of the Iraqi Department of Public Works making a phone call on my way from the second to the first floor when a truck bomb rocked that building and a second truck bomb rocked the second building a few hundred feet away that was the Baghdad City Hall a few seconds later 1500 people got killed or injured in these two explosions I came out of it without a scratch I was in the concrete staircase we moved to a substitute building in another neighborhood in Baghdad that had an internet cafe next to it and I used to go there and pay a flat rate to check my email. Didn't take me more than a few minutes to uh, check my email. After that, I would be just looking around random things on the internet. And I randomly Googled free Bible study and signed up for freebiblestudy.org. A woman was assigned to grade my Bible tests. She asked me in her first email on April 13, 2010, if I had any prayer requests. I said, yeah, prayer requests. Would you please pray that I can get baptized? I've been a believer for 12 years, and this is Baghdad, where we don't exactly have a baptistry in every street corner. And would you please pray that I can live in a Christian-friendly community where I can say Jesus is Lord without getting killed right on the spot? That same day, April 13, 2010, I came across a free book called Bible Basics, written by a British man called Duncan Heaster, who had a ministry in Latvia. I ordered a free copy of that book. The man answered me with an automatic email introducing himself and his ministry and said, and if you're not, and I believe that you need to be immersed in water if you want to be saved, and if you're not baptized, I can baptize you. I said, I appreciate that, sir. I'm from Baghdad. Read the address. He said, I'm coming to Iraq and baptizing you. May 26, 2010, he came all the way from Latvia to northern Iraq, paid for my bus ticket to go from Baghdad to northern Iraq, and baptized me in a bathtub in a hotel room. The woman that was grading my Bible tests used to be a caregiver for a quadriplegic man in a Christian man's house in Pennsylvania. She would be the only contact I had when I came to the United States. She told the Christian man about me who told her, tell that Iraqi if he plans to come over here, he can stay with me indefinitely for free and I will help him establish his life here. A few weeks later, the American embassy in Baghdad started issuing personal visas for Iraqis for the first time in 20 years since the Gulf War. 
So I applied for the visa, quit my job, packed my bag, said the final goodbyes to my family, flew all the way from Baghdad to New York City, took the bus from Port Authority to Reading, Pennsylvania, where that woman and that man were waiting for me. It was freedom and depression. I came from the seven million people metropolis of Baghdad, and now I was in the woods. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I could not take the bus or the train and go anywhere. I could not go grocery shopping or take a haircut. The money that I brought with me was getting less. The government did not promptly answer my asylum application. But that was a very spiritually refreshing part of my life. We had a Bible study and a hymn sing almost every day. And in one of these events, I met the first member of the Lord's Church who called me and said, young man, come over here. What brought you all the way from Baghdad to the Amish country? And he would be the first one that would listen to what you are hearing this morning as my story. He said, you need to share that at my church. He had me speak on a Sunday morning at his church in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, the preacher of which turned out to be a graduate of the school I eventually ended up going to. He said, man, you need to go to a preaching school. And he started raising support money for me before he could pronounce my last name. <laughs> to go to school and be paid to study the Bible at the time when I ran out of the last dollar that I brought with me from Iraq. And before I knew it, in January of 2012, I was in front of 200 students in my first day in school with the dean of students asking me about my plans after I graduate. Like I've been planning for this my whole life. I said, what plans? How did I end up here? And then I remembered that for years back in my hometown of Baghdad, I used to beg God to do exactly what you are doing this morning. Just to have the freedom to go to worship him without fear, to listen to a story that encourages me, to study his word, to fellowship with other believers and sing and pray with them. And in return, I'm gonna serve him for the rest of my life. Every Christian has a gift, a talent that we are expected to invest in God's kingdom. And my talent happened to be my Muslim background. I said I plan to take the gospel to the Muslim community in the United States. I finished school and I moved to the Detroit area and I started the Arab Christian ministry that tells Muslims about Christ and tells Christians about Islam. More about that in volume two of this story in tonight's or this evening's sermon where I will also be talking about evangelism. Nine years ago, I used to hide my faith to stay alive. Today, I share my faith to make a living. Look at me deep in the eye and tell me there is no God. I would like to conclude with this short story that happened within a story. In November of 2004, I was a sanitary engineer, was sent with another engineer from Baghdad to a city that is 40 miles to the west of Baghdad the biggest, most crowded county in Iraq called Fallujah. The American army had just retaken that city from Al-Qaeda. And we were supposed to go there to assess the damages to the water and sewerage system and choose a piece of land that would be the future, future Fallujah water department. We met with two local engineers. We used our measuring tapes and leveling devices to take measurements uh, for a piece of land. We had shish kebab in one of the few surviving outdoor restaurants in that city that used to be the biggest county and the richest county in Iraq. Everybody there was rich, was proud. They loved their guns. They were so religious. 
So kind of like Texas. They were religious, they were rich, they had guns. But it was so gray and so quiet and so dark and so scary when we saw it only days after the military campaign there. It was abandoned by its fortunate families. We were on our way to a sewage lifting station when we were stuck in a traffic jam. Traffic jam. Where did all these cars come from? The city is empty. They said, we have no idea. The traffic jam turned out to be made by an American army checkpoint specifically for us. They pointed their rifles toward us. They told us to drive into an abandoned alleyway, open the doors, put your hands in the air, and put your faces on the wall. The American, army was, uh, the American soldier was pointing his rifle to the back of my head. As I was raising my hands, including the right hand that had my papers and all, and I was looking at that ugly concrete block wall with one thought in my mind. I was sure this is a summary execution. They saw us taking measurements to that piece of land. They thought we were terrorists planning for a mortar attack. And I only had one thought in my mind. In a few seconds, I will meet a God that will not be pleased with most of what I did in my life. Remember the time. That was 2004. Six years after I believed, six years before I got to be baptized. And all I thought of was, God, I tried. My hand got tired, so I said, Sir, can I lower my hand? It got tired. He said, Do you speak English? A <laughs> couple of minutes and a couple of radio calls later, they apologized to us and let us go. My point? I have literally seen death with my own eyes at that time, and the only thought in my mind was, I will go to the eternity and I need to spend it in the right place. I have tried all my best. But the gospel, as it was clear to that one college kid in Baghdad in the summer of 1998, says that the bad news is that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. It tells us that the good news is called the gospel. And that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures for us. And our way to salvation goes through obeying the gospel that I'm preaching to you this morning, if you hear it. Confessing Jesus as Lord, repenting and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be raised up a new creation and live a Christian life. If you have not done that already, please do as we stand and sing.